We're going to keep just talking about his love for the next little while here. If you do not have a Bible with you, um, you're going to need one to follow along in the passages that we look at today. If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you one that you can use while you're here and uh, as we dig into the word. And if that uh, you receive a Bible and you do not have a Bible of your own, please keep the one that we give you as our gift to you. Uh, excited about getting into the Word of God again. Um, many thanks while I'm up here to all those of you who made yesterday possible uh, for the women's retreat. Thank you for all the work that you put in. I haven't heard a lot about it yet. My wife was here cleaning after the retreat. She didn't get home till midnight. I was already sleeping so I could get up ahead of her this morning and get here. So give me details. Um, if you pass me in the hall out here, just let me know what God did uh, as a result of the women's retreat yesterday. But many thanks to all those of you who put so much work into it. Um, I'm just anticipating great things coming out of it. This morning, we're going to take one more look at the subject of divorce and what Jesus said about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The first half of this message took place last Sunday, so if you were not here last Sunday, uh, please go to our website and listen to that message. Um, It was meant to go together with this one. It's a bigger topic than we could cover in one week for sure. In fact, it's bigger than we can cover this morning, but we're going to spend a little more time on it this morning before we move on. Last week, we addressed the corrective aspect of what Jesus was doing. He referred or he referenced some ideas that were being taught by various rabbis at that time on the issue of divorce. And those ideas were so wrong and so contrary to God's intent that Jesus could not let them go. He had to say something about them. Now imagine his position as the son of God, having observed that some rabbis representing God's family, representing his family, were teaching people that they could divorce or should divorce because of some very trivial issues. It must have simply broken Jesus' heart to see what was happening all around him as he walked this earth. And it's in that heartbreak that I think we ought to seek our counsel on the issue of divorce. This is so much more than simply a black and white, right and wrong issue. And that's where I want us to go this morning. Why was Jesus so strong in his words on divorce? What was it about divorce that drove Jesus to address it so early on in this, his first recorded sermon? I'm going to leave a lot of holes in the divorce picture when this message is over. I know that already. Um, There are essentially only two accepted reasons for divorce mentioned in the Bible. We'll get to those. Beyond that, I'm left to fill in the blanks or... Or try to give counsel on things that are not spoken directly to by Jesus or by anyone else in the Bible. I think it could be very foolish of me to try to present an exhausted list of conditions for divorce. Um, I can tell you from experience as a pastor and counselor for uh, many people that this is a messy subject. It just simply is. It's a messy subject. Um, People that come to me or to others for counseling or perspective each come from a very unique situation requiring a very specific solution. So my desire for this morning is that we take a step back or go up to a higher level where we can get a view that will hopefully impact how we process what we're seeing or experiencing in the realm of divorce or just in the realm of marriage too. Uh, I feel very strongly that God's given us some important perspective that for the most part, we're missing when it comes to marriage and divorce. And I want us to wrestle with that perspective this morning. 
There's no better place to start than at the beginning, so let's go to the creation story, specifically to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Go ahead and turn there now. And what we're going to read follows the account of God creating the heavens and the earth and everything that's in the heavens and the earth in six days and then resting on the seventh. God had placed Adam in the garden and now God was faced with a dilemma. And I have to say that personally, I am so happy with the solution that he came up with. This is Genesis two eighteen through 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh god created the union between a man and a woman the union that we call marriage now slow down long enough to ponder the reality that god created humans with a need to be in relationship Um, not just the marriage relationship but in relationship god created people to primarily be in relationship with him God desires us to be close to him. In the Garden of Eden, God was there with Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us that they walked together in the garden, enjoying each other's company. They had a union between them. God had established a oneness with Adam and Eve. There was nothing standing between them, and he had put that together. Early on in the Bible, we can see that God had a strong desire for oneness between him and his people. And so he made covenants with his people, binding commitments to them that he took very, very seriously. God put great value in the oneness he created between him and his people. God also took the oneness he had created between Adam and Eve very seriously. In fact, when Jesus came and spoke his father's truth to the world, he would go back to the oneness his father had created between Adam and Eve and set that creation up before his people again. So turn to Matthew 19, and we'll look at those words. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. In the Sermon on the Mount, we've, we've already seen, seen Jesus address the issue of divorce. He would do it again later in Matthew 19. In Matthew 5, Jesus raises the issue himself. In Matthew 19, the question about divorce is raised by someone else. In fact, this time, it's the Pharisees that raise the questions. Remember that these were the guys who were teaching all the lies about divorce. We're not told what the motive of these particular Pharisees was, but here they are asking Jesus about his stand on divorce. Let's look at the passage. It says, And Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read, and here he goes back to Genesis 2, That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, 
and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And here's something we don't see in the Genesis account. It says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So the Pharisees go after the difference between what Jesus was saying and what they thought Moses had said in the law. They had been wrong all along. Moses had not commanded God's people to divorce their spouses over trivial things. So Jesus reemphasizes the truth of God's design and desire for marriage here. Jesus states clearly that the oneness that God created in the marriage union is not something to be taken lightly, nor is it to be broken by man. God seems to have commitment issues. Thankfully, his issues with commitment are at the opposite end of the spectrum from where our issues are. We give up far too easily on the commitments we make to people. God never gives up on the commitment that he's made to us. Let's look for a few minutes at God's commitment to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And this is remarkable to me. God has had a desire for oneness with his people from the start. His love for his people will not and cannot run out. Now hit pause for a minute here. Do you know just how deep and pure and unconditional and limitless God's love for you is? Do you know that? I'm confronted with this over and over and over again these days. Um, God loves me. He loves me. He is so committed to me that his love for me will never end, nor will it even decrease at all. Even in my darkest moments of sin, God's love for me remains steadfast. Every moment of every day, it's there. There's nothing I can do to stop God from loving me to the fullness of his capability. God loves me perfectly, and he has serious commitment issues when it comes to his love for me. His commitment to me cannot be broken. God loves me enough to discipline me for the sake of my oneness with him. Um, I've learned this truth through being a parent. If I let my kids get away with sinful, selfish behavior, guess what happens to our relationship? They see the wrong that they've done and they know that there are consequences for their actions. They were born with a conscience just like I was. So when they test their boundaries and I don't show them or help them find where those boundaries are, I've held back my love for them and they know it. And my relationship with them suffers as a result. I've had some of my deepest connections with my boys immediately following my decision to discipline them for doing something wrong to show them the boundaries. They see and experience my love for them and we grow closer to each other as a result. And no, I don't do this as consistently and effectively as I should, but I'm learning as a parent and they're learning as kids. God loves his people enough to discipline and correct them, but his love for his people never, ever runs out. And we can see this demonstrated so clearly in the Old Testament of the Bible. 
in God's interactions with Israel. And so let's look at God's commitment issues with Israel for a minute. Um, This is both scary and very encouraging. From the beginning, God loved his people. God loved Israel. They were his people and he was their God. He provided everything that they needed. That provision even included a set of guidelines for them to follow. Very detailed guidelines. He told them how they were to act in just about every situation. God gave them prosperity. He gave them children. He gave them land. There were points where where Israel literally ran over nation after nation after nation to receive what God had promised them. And by the way, God kept every single promise he made to Israel. He loved Israel very, very much. But in their selfishness, Israel often lost sight of God's love and his faithfulness to them. They let their sinfulness get the best of them, and that cost them dearly. They went their own way time after time. They even created other gods to follow and give credit to for for all that they were enjoying. Now try to imagine how this felt for God. They were his chosen people upon whom God was eager to pour out his blessing. He would lay down his life for them, but they wouldn't even acknowledge him at times. He was in love with them. They rejected his love. Um, Their rejection is seen and felt in the words of the Old Testament frequently, especially in the words that God gave his prophets to speak to Israel. The prophets were men that God had chosen to speak on his behalf to his people. They weren't listening to him, so he gave them voices from among them to speak to him, to them, for him. But still they rejected God's love and his devotion to them. And because of the depth of God's commitment to his people, they were referred to as adulterers for the way that they treated him. To God, the oneness between him and his people was a bond that could not be broken. He was married to his people Israel, but they forsook that covenant. They rejected his love. They discredited the bond between them and God. And so the book of, in the book of Judges and First Chronicles and Psalms and Ezekiel and Hosea and beyond, God refers to the nation of Israel as adulterers. They never had the right to cheat on God, but they did. They had affairs with gods that had been fabricated by man. They sought their significance and security from places other than their relationship with God. They took their love elsewhere. That's adultery. It's a breaking of the covenant of marriage. Israel broke their covenant with God and not just once. Far from it, this happened over and over and over again. Now, one of the prophets that God called to speak for him was a man named Hosea. There's a whole book in the Bible named after Hosea. So let's go there now to see this incredible story of what God was saying through Hosea. Turn to the book of Hosea. Um, This is remarkable to me. The book of Hosea is going to declare the anger of God towards his people Israel. It's a painful book. God was so angry over the unfaithfulness of Israel, and rightfully so. They were not being faithful to the oneness that God had established between himself and them. So God uses Hosea to speak that message to them. He calls them out on their affairs with things far from him. But I want you to see how this book starts this morning. God's going to use a human marriage relationship to teach Israel a lesson. So look at Hosea chapter 1. We're going to read the first nine verses. This is what it says. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. 
when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so he, Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name Not My People. For you are not my people and I am not your God. This is such a painful story. Let me give you just some of the details behind this story. First of all, the name of this prophet. Um, Hosea comes from the same verb that some other famous names come from. Hosea shares its meaning with the names Joshua and Jesus. It means to save or deliver God was communicating through his prophet Hosea that he would indeed deliver his people. What a loving message he sends in the midst of a harsh rebuke. God calls Hosea to take a wife. And the tragedy here is not in the fact that her name is Gomer. What's remarkable here is that God knew that Gomer would not be faithful to Hosea. Um, I once believed that God was asking Hosea here to marry a prostitute. That's not actually true. That's not what's happening here. The unfaithfulness had not yet happened. Hosea's marriage to Gomer started well. They were married and had their first child. Note that our passage says that Gomer bore him a child. And it's important that we go back and look at the original languages here to examine what's going on. Gomer got pregnant then two more times, but we do not see these children being born to him, to Hosea. Gomer had affairs with two other men, and the second of the, and third child mentioned here were not Hosea's children. Gomer had whored after men other than her husband. And this is a tragic story, but a story in which Hosea stayed with her. He stayed with her. He would not break the covenant that he had made with her, the commitment that he had made to Gomer, his wife. Hosea's relationship with his wife was a vehicle that God had chosen to use to communicate to Israel the reality of his love for them and the fact that his love would never run out. This troubled marriage was a model that God used to illustrate his oneness with Israel, a oneness that he would not forsake. In this book, you'll see God's anger towards Israel. You'll see his judgment against Israel for their unfaithfulness. That's evident in most of the book of Hosea. But over and above that, you'll see God's never-ending love for his people and his commitment to them. In spite of all that they put him through, God's love for them would not run out. Now go back in your heads now 
to Jesus' words about marriage. He said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I have to believe that God intends for our marriages to demonstrate here on earth the commitment that he has to us. The oneness that we have with God as his people is the oneness that he wants us to demonstrate in our marriages. In fact, I believe that the oneness we have with God in our relationship with him is the only thing that will make our marriages, our oneness with each other, work the way that God wants it to work. God's love for us will never give up and never run out. And that's the kind of love he's looking for us to have towards our husbands and wives. So do we? Do we? Do we have that kind of love for our spouses? And wait for a minute before you answer that question. Let's go back to the start with God again. Do we understand just how devoted God is to us? Are we courageous enough to acknowledge our adulterous nature? Jesus just showed us in his words on lust just how easily we commit adultery. We lust after someone or something other than God, even just in our minds, and we commit adultery. We have lustful intentions towards someone other than our spouse, and we commit adultery. And boy, do we commit adultery in our relationships with God. We give God barely a fraction of the honor, obedience, submission, and love that he's worthy of. We sin again and again and again. We deny our identity as children of God and citizens of his kingdom daily. We don't treasure him. We don't respect him. We don't fear him. We don't follow him. We don't depend on him. We don't appreciate him. We don't even acknowledge him sometimes. Yet there he is faithful to us in his love for us every single time we cheat on him. He puts so much value in the oneness that he's created between us and him. And that oneness was his gift to us. It cost him separation from his son and the incredible, indescribable pain of watching Jesus die in our place and take on himself the whole punishment for our sins. God initiated the restoration of oneness with his people. He's the one giving it away to us. He's the one making the covenant and he's the one sticking to that covenant. Do you realize that at any given moment on any given day, God is consumed with love for you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He never turns his back on us at all. At any time, God's love is right there with us and it's as full as it can ever be. No matter what we do, no matter who we're hurting, no matter what we're lusting after, no matter what earthly, temporary, worthless pursuit we're investing in, no matter who we've lifted up to a higher place than the one he should hold, God's love for us never gives up. It never runs out. He remains and will always remain faithful to us. And he brings us together as husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters, as friends who walk the road of life together. And he says, now love each other like I love you. He says, husbands, love your wives like my son loves his bride, the church. Lay your lives down for each other. What you experience in the love that I have for you, give that kind of love to each other. If we were actually doing this, loving like he loves, 
What do you think the divorce rate in the church would be? Let me tell you something that I share with the couples I counsel who are preparing to marry. Start with the oneness that you have with God. Start there. We simply have to understand the love that God has for his people. We have to understand how committed he is to us. We have to embrace the reality that God's love for us is perfect. It will never give up. It will never run out. We have a need in us for that kind of boundless, unconditional love. And we can experience that kind of love in God alone. When we do embrace the love that our Father has for us, then we can begin to offer that kind of love to each other. Then we can let go of the expectations that we have of each other to provide that love that we need, that love that only God can provide for us. We are far too quick to give up on each other. God never gives up. If we understand just how committed God is to us, won't it get much harder to give up on someone else? I think Hosea was close enough to God to truly experience that love that God had, that commitment that God had to his people. So he stayed with Gomer. He loved Gomer through all her adultery. God loves us through all our adultery and our relationship with him. But his love for us never gives up and will never run out. It hasn't run out for his people and it never will. How then can we just give up on our marriages? God will not give up on us. How can we give up on someone else, on the people in our lives? God has a very strong stand on divorce. But he has an even stronger stand on love. He has an even stronger stand on the concept of oneness that he created He's given us the gift of oneness with him and oneness in our marriage relationships. When we choose to deny that oneness, it hurts God. It's very hard for him to take. Jesus said that sexual infidelity was the only thing that would take divorce out of the realm of adultery for him. He seems to be saying that the oneness of the marriage covenant can be redeemed and restored Hope is not lost. He believes this because he knows the hope of restoration with his people. Later in the New Testament, Paul mentions a scenario in which a non-believer divorces and abandons a follower of Jesus. This is also not something that God considers adultery. But the Bible gives us no clear instruction beyond that when it comes to divorce. So let me address briefly the reality of this oneness that we've been talking about being broken The reality of the oneness that God declares in marriage, and I've confirmed this with people who have been through divorce, is that the oneness will always be there. It's always going to be there. When you go through divorce, you don't just erase the oneness that God declared in your previous marriage. It doesn't just disappear. It goes with you throughout your life. That oneness is lifelong. There's a lot of restoration that God does in the lives of those who have faced divorce to help them come to terms with the oneness that was once established between them and their spouse. He can do what needs to be done to help people enter into oneness with someone else. But it's a hard road to walk. The denial of the oneness that God declares in the marriage union is what God labels as adultery. It's the denial of that oneness. That's why he comes down so hard on divorce. 
But please understand that Jesus is not saying in his words that someone who has divorced and remarries now lives in adultery the rest of their lives. That's not what he's getting at. Divorce happens and he knew that it would, but when it happens for whatever reason, the denial of the oneness God establishes between two people needs to be taken very seriously. There's a verse in the book of Malachi that says that God hates divorce. What God hates is the destruction of a union, a oneness that he established. His plan for marriage is that we enter into a lifelong oneness with each other. That's his desire for our relationship with him. He won't break that oneness with us. He hates it when that oneness between his people is broken. But God does not hate the divorced. God loves a divorce just as much as he loves every single one of us in this room. God's desire is that divorce be treated with the seriousness that it deserves. Divorce needs to be confessed and forgiveness for that denial of the oneness God established has got to be sought. But when forgiveness is sought, God will grant it. And he will go to work restoring those who have been hurt through divorce. Some people that I've spoken with have have a hard time not seeing themselves as wearing the scarlet A for the rest of their lives. And that breaks my heart. God can and will forgive the sin that has been committed through divorce. God gives second chances. And if you know someone dealing with the pain of having been divorced, please be a reminder of God's love for them. Which brings us to a challenge that I'd like to give you as a member of God's family. It is very common that people who have been through divorce feel judged by the people in the church. It's very common. My prayer is that this church family will never stand in judgment of anyone who has been down the road of divorce. As strong as God's stand on divorce is, it will never give us license to stand in judgment of another. Never. I want you to understand something about our role as the church when it comes to people who have suffered through divorce. We are to be a reminder to everyone that there is a God who loves unconditionally and that the oneness that exists between them and God cannot be broken. We are to be a reminder to each other that God's devotion to us, his commitment to us, his love for us will never give up and it will never run out. I've interacted with several people who have been divorced who now have a difficult time seeing God's love for them because of what they've been through. It is so painful to see what you thought was a lifelong love just fall apart. Church, we are called to be a reminder to each other, whether in the case of divorce or not, that God's love is perfect and that it will never give up on us and never run out. Let's be that for each other as a church. We have to be that for each other. My prayer for us this morning is that we will walk out of this place encouraged by the reminder of just how committed God is to us. First and foremost, please leave here with a deeper commitment to your oneness relationship with your Heavenly Father. 
Remember that he has entered into a covenant relationship with you. That does not mean that God's going to give and give and give and you're going to take and take and take. Remember that your relationship with your father is built on the oneness that he made possible between the two of you. Live in love with God. Also, I pray that you'll leave here with a deeper commitment to your marriage. God has declared that you and your spouse are one. Live in the unconditional love that characterizes that God-established oneness. Take some time this week to truly evaluate the level of your commitment to your spouse. Do you love your husband or wife with a never-giving-up, never-running-out love? I know that there are times when you feel like giving up, times when you feel like you just don't have anything left. In times like that, rather than pondering the temptation to run, go to the perfect love of your Father to find everything that you need so that you can extend His kind of love to your spouse. Finally, I'm praying that we as a church will always grow in the compassion and grace that we offer those in our family who have been through divorce. May God forgive us for the times we've judged. We are not judges. We are reminders of God's love and grace to this world, inside and outside the church. Just as I warned you about earlier, um, I do not have all the answers when it comes to divorce. I'm not going to give you a list of situations in which it's okay to divorce. I'm not going to give you a list of situations in which you can stand and judge someone else's situation. What God has been working on in me in relation to divorce is what you've just heard me say today. I've seen more clearly than ever recently that God has a strong stand on divorce, but he has an even stronger stand on love. And we do not love the way he desires us to love. So it's no wonder that divorce is such a big issue in this world. Let's get the love thing right and see what happens to the divorce thing. I want us to end this service with the greatest reminder that we have of just how committed God's love is, God's is to us. He really seems to be crazy about us. He really does. From the start, God's desire has been that we would be one with him. That we would be in an eternal relationship with him. He has a big vision for that oneness. It means everything to him. Even marriage can't touch this oneness that he desires with us. He gave us marriage as a temporary experience of oneness. We won't be married in heaven, but our oneness with God our Father is eternal. From the moment sin entered the world and severed mankind's oneness with God, God had a plan to restore it. And I'm so grateful for that plan. I can't imagine my life without the oneness that I have, as imperfect as I am in that oneness, with God. Every month we do something special to remind ourselves of God's commitment to us and just far, just how far he's willing to go to maintain that oneness. We share communion together, and that's what we're going to do right now. Before us are the simple elements that Jesus used to establish this celebration of oneness. He gave us the symbol of bread to represent his body being freely offered to receive the punishment that we deserve. He also gave us the symbol of the cup, to represent the blood of Jesus that was shed in one final total sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be washed clean. I would invite you to come this morning with that restoration of oneness between us and God on your heart. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, you're welcome at this table to celebrate with us God's gift to his people. You don't have to be a member of this church. This is for members of God's eternal family. This is an opportunity for us to unite in the celebration of what God has done for us. The elements of the bread and cup are here at the tables and will be served by the elders of this church. And as we serve as elders, we'll be praying for you as you come, that you would be reminded of God's love for you as you participate in this. When you get the bread and cup, feel free to take them to your seat to partake of them. You can come up here to the cross if you want. You can go to the back of the room with your family to share it with them. The important thing is that you remember what this celebration is all about. Our loving Father, the one who created us and desires to be in the oneness, in oneness of relationship with us, made that oneness possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how much he loves us. That's how devoted, how committed God is to us. Remember that as you come this morning. I'm going to invite the elders to come now and prepare to serve and the worship team to come as we celebrate and worship together. I want to remind you again of something that we introduced last week. If you would like somebody to pray with you this morning, we will have people available for that after the service. Just outside these doors and to the left is our prayer room. They'll meet you there. If you have any burden on your heart that you'd like to have someone pray with you about, just go there when we're done. Let's pray together. Father, I am simply overwhelmed at times. That you would be willing to stick with me. You know what I've done to deny the covenant that you have with me. You know what every single one of us has done. But there you are and there's your love. And I can't thank you or praise you enough for never giving up on me. God, I want to lift up this church family to you. These people that you've given me to shepherd. Father, it breaks my heart when they can't see your love. Remind them right now just how much you love them. And that your commitment to them will never end. Your love for them will never give up. It will never run out. God, help them to know that the creator of the universe loves them unconditionally and more deeply than we can ever, con- and we can ever grasp. Father, we come now to remember the commitment that you made to us and how far you were willing to go to maintain that, to keep that commitment and maintain that oneness with us. Thank you for that. 
We look ahead and anticipate the day of your son's return. When all of the adultery will be put aside. And we will live in eternal oneness with you in a state of perfection. We look around this morning and are reminded that we are to be to each other a reminder of the love that you have for us. Teach us to be that. Help us to get past the judgment, the condemnation, the comparison, the competition to where we truly love each other the way you love us. And Father, we look inside this morning. And we ask ourselves the question of whether or not we are loving each other like you love us. God, will you create that to a much deeper level here at Chapel Hill Church? Let us be very much aware of the love that you have for us. Help us to get completely wrapped up in you and your love. And help us then to extend that kind of love to each other. Thank you again for this gift that made our oneness with you possible. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for his body and blood. We offer ourselves up to you again this morning for your purposes. We ask for your forgiveness, and we thank you that you give it. We pray all this in the, one, in the name of the one who gave it all for us, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.